Our Father, we confess that we often have an indifference toward the greatness of your love that you've shown us in Christ. Uh, It is glorious. So we pray as we look to your word that you would open it up for us, open up our hearts, give us eyes that see your glory in your Son. We may be transformed into his likeness, that we may love you as as you are worthy of it. So give us help in this time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Great stories are dramatic. And we love to get caught up in the drama that is there when we read a good novel or watch the latest movie, when we learn about history or follow a sports team. And the way a well-crafted plot line goes is that it builds up to a climax. A real-life example of this was the U.S. men's ice hockey team in 1980 that went to the Winter Olympics. For their story, the climax came in their surprising underdog defeat of the four-time defending gold medalist, the Soviet team, after which the Americans went on to win the gold. It was called the miracle on ice. It was so dramatic. And we get caught up in stories like that. Well, the gospel message is very dramatic as well. In fact, it is the greatest story of all time. The stakes have never been higher. The cost of redemption has never been greater. And the results could not be any better for the redeemed. And today, as we finish Romans chapter 8, We reach a high point at the end of a lengthy exposition of the gospel. Paul's not finished with Romans. There's much more to come. Uh, But we are reaching a height uh, in his narrative here of the gospel. And it goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And from there, he began walking us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, step by step. In chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all mankind, against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. God gave them up. In chapter 2, God shows no partiality. He will judge Jew and Gentile alike. In chapter 3, Scripture charges that none is righteous, no, not one. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith to show God's righteousness. In chapter 4, Abraham was justified by faith not works, and he became the father of all who believe and are also counted righteous by faith. In chapter 5, therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin came through Adam into the world, our first covenant head, and God's grace and righteousness came to those who receive it through a new covenant head, Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, 
We died to our sins with Christ, and we were raised with him to walk in newness of life. No longer slaves of sin, now we are slaves of God. In chapter 7, we've been released from the law and now serve in the new way of the Spirit. The law is good, but sin misuses it and and brings us to do evil. But in chapter 8, we have no condemnation in Christ. The Spirit has set us free, and now we are to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. We suffer in the Spirit with longing for the glory that God will reveal to us. And with that storyline that we followed through from Romans 1, we arrive where we are today at Romans 8:28. And here Paul writes, "And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose." All things don't just happen to work together for good. No God is orchestrating them that way. The verses just before this say that the Spirit is interceding for us. And in accord with that intercession, God is working all things together for the good of his people. When it says all things there, it really means all things. Even hardships, trials, suffering. If you are in Christ, God is turning it all for your good. It doesn't mean that at the present you'll see how he's doing that, but you can know with certainty that he is doing that. He's working it together for your good. And that should be a massive source of comfort and encouragement for you, especially if you find yourself in the midst of difficult and trying circumstances. It can remind us of Joseph in Genesis, who underwent years of suffering, but at the end of it, He could say to his brothers, the same brothers who had wickedly initiated his suffering, he said, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. This wonderful promise of Romans 8.28 is not true for everybody. Paul gives two descriptions of who it is for, for whom God works all things together for good. The first description he gives us is for those who love God. Loving God is a believing response to God's love for us. Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We've learned that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. So a proper response to that loving act of God's is to receive it by faith. God turns us from being lovers of sin to lovers of him. And that is good news for you if you're here today and you are not a lover of God. Maybe you're indifferent. Maybe you hate or despise him. Well, the good news is that it's not too late. You can turn to him by faith in his son, Jesus. And he will make you into one who loves God above all else. And that's who this promise of all things working together for good is for. It's for those who love God. It's not for everyone. Paul gives us a second description as well. He says that God is working all things together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, there's more than one way that you can use the word call. You can use it in the sense of inviting. If I call you on the phone, I'm inviting you into a conversation. When you, when you hear the ring and you see my number show up, you can choose whether to answer it or not. I hope that you do answer it. But there's another way to use the word call. It is in the sense of a command that must be obeyed for a specific purpose. Like when you are called up for duty in the military, or when you're called to serve on a jury. In that sense, being called is not receiving an invitation, but rather it is being authoritatively summoned. And here, God's calling is related to the second sense rather than the first. The calling is an authoritative summons to receive salvation. And we could say that the gospel message of Christ goes out in the sense of a general call, an invitation to everyone, inviting them to believe in Jesus Christ. But as they hear it, what God does is he calls he summons effectually some people to respond to that message in faith. And this is important to understand because when we get to the next chapter, chapter 9 of Romans, we will see in verse 24 that from Jew and Gentile alike, God has called some effectually to Christ in this second sense. And it's evident that Paul is using calling in that sense here because we know that not everyone who hears the general invitation, the general call of the gospel, responds in faith. Not everyone believes in Christ. And so what is the difference between those who respond in faith and those who reject Christ in unbelief? Well, the difference is God's effectual call. And Paul is describing the people of the promise here in Romans 8.28 both as those who love him and as those whom he has called according to his purpose. What God's effectual call does to a person is that it overcomes his or her sinful resistance to God and to Christ. So that when that person hears the general call of the gospel, God's effectual call creates within him or her faith the faith that is necessary to be justified before God. His call, in that sense, results in that person believing the gospel and becoming one who loves God. The call of God is powerful. Listen to Romans 4.17. It says that God calls into existence the things that do not exist. And when he does that with us, he's powerfully calling saving faith into existence in those who were dead in their sins. Now there's more to come on this. So as we get to verses 29 and 30 here, Paul is giving us a much fuller picture and he's showing how God has eternally committed himself to his people. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And we can see that the purpose God calls us to at the end of that is to be conformed to the image of his son. 
his son Jesus. That is the aim of all things working together for our good, that we could be remade into the likeness of Christ. That purpose is at the center of the Spirit's intercession on our behalf. And being conformed to the image of Christ should remind us that Adam, the first man, was made in the image of God. It was as God's image bearer that he was to exercise dominion over the creation. But he fell into sin, and all of us with him. Then Jesus came as the second Adam, as the true image of God, his firstborn son. He died, and he rose from the dead to to reign as Lord. And so it is that all he redeems with him are being conformed to his image, to the image of Christ. They get to experience the resurrection life of Christ, get to rule with him as his fellow heirs. As it is, God wants Christ, he wants his son to be the firstborn among many brothers. This is why we were adopted as sons. So that's, that's his purpose for which he has a people is to conform us to the image of Christ and so bring glory to his son. But if we look at the beginning of verse 29, what we're seeing is two things that are links in what has often been called the golden chain of our salvation. You get three more links in this chain in verse 30. When you read all of it together, you see five events, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. You jump down to verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You can see why it's often called a golden chain. It is because each link in the chain is connected to the next in an unbroken fashion. Those whom he foreknew, the same ones he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, the same ones he called, the same ones he justified, the same ones he glorified. They're all connected together. We're talking about a group of of people that's carried through this chain from beginning to end without any loss or variation. Those who start out in the foreknown link are going to make it all the way through to the glorified link of the chain. And Paul's given us these five important concepts that are each loaded with meaning. So what I want to do is take a few moments and walk through each one of them briefly. So the first one is foreknown. It says, for those whom he foreknew. And we have to be careful with this word because the way it comes across in English does not automatically communicate its full range of meaning. From the way it sounds, you might think it simply means to know ahead of time. But God knows all things ahead of time, including the hearts of all people. Yet, not all people end up justified and glorified. So there must be something more he's meaning to to communicate here. And what we need to do is to define this word biblically. One way to do that is to look at the other place that Paul uses it in the book of Romans. And that is chapter 11, verse 2. 
There, Paul is addressing a question of whether God has rejected his people Israel in light of the fact that the vast majority of them do not believe in Christ. And verse 2 of chapter 11 says, God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. Paul's using foreknew there to say that God has not rejected the people whom he chose beforehand, the ones he made a covenant with. And this understanding is perfectly in keeping with the way that knowledge is often used in the Old Testament. It is emphasizing God's special choice, his loving covenant commitment to his people. For example, Genesis 18, verse 19, records God saying to Abraham that he's not going to hide his act of judgment that he's about to pour out on Sodom and Gomorrah. And his reasoning for not hiding that from Abraham is this. He says, for I have known him, I have known Abraham. Now our Bibles often translate that to say, I have chosen him. And that is an accurate translation because it's giving the correct sense of the word. But the word is literally known, I have known him. We can also see in a place like Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, where the Lord says to the prophet, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. He's putting these three words in parallel to each other. New, consecrated, appointed. The Lord said he did this to Jeremiah before he was even born, before he was formed in the womb. He foreknew the prophet. He chose him to be his prophet one more place that we can see this, this sense of the word known in the Old Testament is Amos chapter 3, verse 2, where the Lord says to Israel, he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. He's certainly not saying that he's unfamiliar with the other nations on the planet. What he's saying is that he has uniquely chosen and set his covenant affection upon Israel as his people. He hasn't done that with any other nation. And this is how we should understand foreknew in Romans 8. It means those whom God chose beforehand, those upon whom he has set his covenant affection. This took place before everything else. It is roughly equivalent to verse 33 in Romans 8 where Paul mentions God's elect, God's chosen. So that's foreknown, the first link in the chain. But he moves on to a second, predestined. This one is fairly straightforward, predetermined, decided beforehand. The word is highlighting the plan and purpose of God, what he's decreed ahead of time. And here in Romans 8, he spells it out for us. He said he's predestined his people to be conformed to the image of his son. If you look at how Paul uses the same word in another place, 1 Corinthians 2.7, you can see the same sense. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God, and here's the word, just translated differently, decreed before the ages for our glory. God has predestined this before the ages for our glory, he says. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. 
In Christ we were predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So whereas foreknowledge was emphasizing God's special choice of his people, his setting his covenant love upon them, foreknowledge, uh, excuse me, predestination is highlighting that he has decreed and determined beforehand that his people would be part of his plan and purpose. So the first link of his choice leads into his purpose, the second link. And the second leads to the third, which is called. And this is where we enter time as we know and experience it. The first two links happen in eternity past, before we existed. But called takes place at a certain time in our lives. Those who were chosen and appointed for God's purpose are then called. As was the case in verse 28, this calling is an effective or effectual call. These were called according to his purpose, which is to say that it is the foreknown and predestined who were called. And I said before that the call of God creates saving faith because we can see here that the called are the same group of people who are then justified. Well, what is necessary to be justified? Paul has made it quite clear in Romans that faith is necessary to be justified. So somewhere between called and justified, their saving faith happens. It's only those who have faith in Jesus who are justified. And they are the ones who've been called. So then when we get to this fourth link of justified, I'm not going to say too much here because we've spent a lot of time on it in Romans. It is God rendering the verdict of righteous. And those who receive that verdict from God as judge is not those who've never sinned. All have sinned. Paul made that clear. But rather it is those who trust in Jesus and his perfect righteousness that he died in our place. And by our faith in Jesus, God credits the righteousness of Jesus to us. That's what justification is. If you want a refresher on it, I'd encourage you to go back and read Romans 2, 3, and 4. The point here is that all those whom God has called, he justified. They are righteous before God through faith in Jesus. And that leads us to the fifth and final link in the chain, which is glorified. To be glorified is to receive glory, or maybe more accurately for the people of God, to share in his glory. We've been talking about this in Romans 8. Verses 17 and 18 say that we will be glorified with Christ. We await the glory that is to be revealed to us. To be glorified is to be fully redeemed, finally perfected in Christ. In verse 29, it is to be fully conformed to the image of Christ. That is our glory, and it is coming in the future. We are not glorified until our bodies are redeemed and transformed through resurrection. But notice how Paul talks about it here as though it has already happened. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, the justified are that sure of glory. He's not going to lose any on this path. 
They're going to receive it with certainty. There's no question for any of God's people. As many as he justified, he glorified. It is a perfect, unbreakable chain. So as many as God foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. That's the point. He does all of these things in that order for every one of his people. And we can see that salvation from beginning to end belongs entirely to the Lord. If you're trusting in Jesus today for your salvation, thank him for this. Take comfort and encouragement and joy in knowing that God personally guarantees that the good work he began in you will certainly be carried on to completion in Christ Jesus. He doesn't lose any of his own. That's good news. If you're not yet trusting in Jesus, if you've not put your faith in him, the point is not for you to look at this golden chain and try to figure out whether you've been chosen by God or not. Considering these things are not the way to be in or outside of Christ. What Paul has done is he's pulled back the curtain a bit for us, for those who are in Christ, to show God's working on behalf of his people from eternity past to eternity future. There's no way for us to search the hidden mind of God to say, this person's chosen, this person's not. No, the only thing for you to do is to consider Jesus, that he died and rose again such that anyone who believes will be saved. And as we watch you turn from your sins to put your faith in him, as we see your life begin to bear the fruits of repentance, of being justified before God, well, then we can look at this golden chain and, and rejoice to see you there. We rejoice that you decided to receive Christ. And we also rejoice to know that God's gracious working stands behind it all. These are some pretty awesome and humbling things to think about. And again, remember that Paul has been building up to this over eight chapters of rehearsing the gospel for us. And in response, he says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now he's labored to show in this letter how it is that in Christ Jesus, God can be for us. How is it that a righteous God can Receive and bless sinners. Well, the message of the gospel answers that. And this verse gives an implication of it. Well, if, if God is for us like that, well, who can be against us? The answer is nobody. But it's not saying that nobody will ever oppose us. Rather, what it is saying is that nobody can ever succeed in opposing us. If God is on your side, no one can successfully stand against you. All opposition to God's people will fail. Verse 32 explains why we can be confident that God is steadfastly for us. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, the greatest thing that God could have done, he did. The highest cost possible 
was for God to give up that which was most precious to him, his beloved son. And he paid that price. Jesus was handed over by God to die. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Because God has done this most difficult thing of giving up his own son, his only son, we are then assured that he will do the easier thing, which is to give us everything else. It is an argument from the greater to the lesser, or more accurately, from the greatest to the lesser. The point is that God giving his own son for you guarantees that he will not hold back anything that is needful for you to accomplish his purpose of conforming you to the image of Christ and getting you to glory. He will not hold back. And that's how I'm understanding all things here. God is graciously giving us all things. So we shouldn't expect that he's going to give us what we want to spend on our sinful pleasures. That's not in line with the goal for which God has saved us. If God gave up his son for the purpose of bringing us back to himself to behold and reflect the glory of Christ, his son, then he will not hold back anything that is necessary for us to get there. Even if it means bringing us through trials that he uses for our good. All things then are a benefit because we belong to Christ. If your faith is in Christ, but because of what you're currently going through, it doesn't feel like God is for you, well then you should bring your mind back to this verse, to this truth that Paul is telling us. God did not withhold his own son for me, but he delivered him into the hand of, of sinners to be put to death on my behalf. Therefore, I know that God is for me, period. He is eternally and unquestionably for me. So we don't need to fear what we're going through, even though it is difficult and involves much suffering. And Paul then moves on from here into the realm of judgment in verses 33 and 34. He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Again, it's not that nobody will accuse God's people. Satan is the accuser of the brothers. There are enemies of the gospel in this world. Even your own conscience your own conscience can accuse you. The point is that no charge that's brought against you will stick, not in God's court. Why? Because it's God who justifies. Those who are in Christ will never be found guilty because God is the judge who justifies us, and he has done that in Christ. The question of 34 is similar. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So, beloved, 
No one can condemn you. Your judgment has already been pronounced by God. He condemned your sin in Jesus at the cross. And he's justified you by faith in Christ. Christ died. He took on himself the full punishment for our sins. He was raised, showing that God has accepted his death in our place. Christ is now seated at God's right hand, triumphant and exalted. All things are now subject to him. The Father said to him, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And from that position, Christ intercedes for his people on the basis of his shed blood. This is the counterpart to the Spirit's intercession we saw in verse 27. It's that Christ is interceding at the right hand of the Father for us in heaven. He's appealing to God on our behalf. So we have no fear of accusation or condemnation. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as we move into verse 35 then, Paul draws all of this together into one final question that elicits the most elated and memorable answer. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It gets very dear and personal here. The love of God made manifest in Christ, who shall separate us from it? And Paul goes on to give a list of potential candidates including the actions of adversaries, the hard realities of living in this fallen world. Every item on the list that he gives fits with what he's described in verse 18 as the sufferings of this present time. Can any of that separate us from God's love in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And to validate that such terrible things really do happen to God's people and would threaten to separate us from the love of Christ, Paul appeals to Psalm 44. The psalm is a lament about the affliction and oppression and even the defeat of God's people. Verse 22, as quoted here, says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In the psalm, the suffering of God's people is not on account of any wrongdoing on their part. Yet to all appearances, God has abandoned them. He is giving them over to death. And Paul brings this forward and applies it to Christians. We've got to conclude that to be in Christ does not exempt us from suffering. Rather, it qualifies us to suffer in Christ. As God gave Christ over to death, so too he sometimes gives his people in Christ over to death. So you, Christian, in northern New England, do not be surprised if God calls you to suffer for Christ or perhaps even to die for him. You should prepare for that possibility and resolve to be faithful to him but even if you do not experience those things firsthand, remember and pray for your brothers and sisters around the world who are right now suffering for Christ. We tend to be insulated from these things, but they're a reality for many of God's people. 
they could become a reality for us as well. The fact is that many things will set, threaten to separate you from the love of Christ. But the good news is that none of them is able to. Look at the way Paul turns in verse 39. He says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That word no is strong, it's emphatic. In all these things, not by escaping all these things, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors. There's a, a normal word that Paul could have used here for conquering or winning the victory, but apparently it couldn't contain what he meant to communicate. So instead he uses a more elevated word that's it's a bit rare. It's a word that means we overwhelmingly conquer. We win the complete and overwhelming victory. It is an entire overthrow of the situation. What looks like defeat, the defeat of God's people, is overthrown by victory. God's people do suffer many things, but there is no trouble or affliction that can ultimately defeat you if you are in Christ. God totally turns every opposition over to your benefit for your ultimate good. Those who are against you can do any manner of things to you. They can even kill you. But not even that, brothers and sisters, will defeat you. The suffering is real. We're not Stoics. It is painful. But through him who loved us, we overwhelmingly conquer not only in the end, but now, in all these things, we conquer. If you want to be encouraged in this vein, read something like Fox's Book of Martyrs or other accounts of how God's people, Christians, have remained faithful in suffering. There's many who have gone before us and have lived and died, as Stephen did in, in the book of Acts, and are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can be encouraged by their accounts. Well, the message is that none of these things can separate you from the love of Christ. You are completely and overwhelmingly victorious through him. And to emphasize it all the more, we get the confident statement of verses 38 and 39. Look at that with me. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, it's all out there now. There's not a single obstacle in the entire created order, which is everything that there is apart from God himself. There's nothing out there that can separate you from the love of Christ. No, wait. He called it the love of Christ in 35. Here he calls it the love of God in Christ. The two are the same. They're the one. We're talking about the Son's gospel work, which was initiated by the Father, who sent Christ to live and die and rise and reign. The Father has loved us, and the Son came in that love to die for our sins and to make peace between us and God. 
And God has committed himself in love to be entirely for us. Because he rules over everything that exists, he works all things to our eternal good, the good of being conformed to Christ. The gospel message gives every believer certainty that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. Not failure, not disaster, not opposition, not terminal illness, not persecution, not death, not Satan himself. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. In Christ you are held by God's sovereign loving hands and he will not let you go. And those final words of the chapter are so important for reminding us how it is that we connect with this love of God. It is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Unless you are in Christ Jesus, unless he is your Lord, you don't know the love of God. If you are not in Christ by faith, you are already separated from God. That's your present status on account of your sins. Well, if, you're, if that is your situation today, the good news for you is that you have the opportunity to know the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't require you to do something to earn a place with God. Instead, Jesus invites you to come to him, to trust him, to give up your sinful rebellion against God, and to rest in the reality that he sacrificed himself on the cross in your place for your sins, and that God raised him triumphant from the dead. He promises that if you believe in him, he will take you as his own and reconcile you, you to God. And you will gain everything that we've seen in Romans 8 to experience that God is unwaveringly for you. How vastly different that is from the alternative to have God unwaveringly against you. The difference between those two is Christ, whether your faith is in him or not. For those of you who know the love of God in Christ and are trusting in Jesus today as Lord, I hope that as you consider this passage, you find yourself to be mightily encouraged. God is for you, eternally for you. He foreknew you. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. He called you. He justified you. And he will glorify you. He is at present working all things together for your good in Christ. No one can stand against you. No one can accuse you before God or condemn you. God did not spare his own son. So we know with certainty that he will spare nothing else needful for you now and forevermore. Christ died for you. He was raised. He is exalted at God's right hand. And he is right now interceding for you. You may suffer greatly. You might lose much in this world, even your life. But there's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from God's love for you in Christ. And that gain is worth the loss of everything else. So praise God from whom all blessings do flow. What a gracious and loving and faithful God he is. Let's pray together.
Father, these are glorious things that we have just touched on this morning. We thank you that you show us how much you've loved us in Christ. We confess to you that we deserve none of it. We earned none of it. We are better than no one else. But you've so graciously met us in your love through Christ. We thank you for him today and for your continuing, sustaining, faithful, keeping grace in him. In his name we pray, amen.